social prescribing is what good GPs have always done. It's also what great hairdressers, bartenders and priests have always done too. If you read the Christmas BMJ in the last few weeks, you might have noticed a lot around art and health. The way in which engagement in the arts can help in prevention and treatment, but also affect those more nebulous things which really matter to patients. Loneliness, self-expression, and being connected to a wider community. Now, all of that obviously linked to social prescribing, which looks like it's going to be one of those big changes to medicine coming in the near future. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and in this podcast, I'm talking to Simon Ofer, a GP in Gloucestershire, who has had artists and poets in residence in his surgery, and who has a lot of experience about setting up some of these services which link art and health. We discuss how to do that practically, and Simon makes it sound easy, but he has a few tips for GPs out there who have an idea about a non-medical service that could really help their patients that doesn't yet exist. After that, I'll also be talking to Helen Stokes-Lampard, head of the new National Academy for Social Prescribing. If we have a thousand flowers of social prescribing bloom, like Simon has had, how do we know what actually works? Helen is sceptical that our current ways of evaluating any intervention are actually going to be adequate when it comes to looking at this much more messy world of social prescribing, with all of its localization and the multitude of influences on outcomes. But first, Simon Ofer and I talked about a new project he's setting up to use dance classes to help people with balance issues. Simon, at the beginning of this, setting up a dance for stroke service, what were, mm. what were you thinking? What, what was the genesis of that? What was the, uh, the problem that you were trying to solve? So yeah, with with that uh, with that particular project, the the, the problems really are that um, patients uh, quite often don't engage with sort of medical type therapies. So, so for example, um, what, uh, rehabilitation, COPD rehabilitation, or or, or anything like that. Patients have a quite a low rate of completing those courses. Um, and my idea there was to try and actually engage them in something that was a bit more fun, which also had the clinical benefits uh, to it uh, and had the added benefits of a sort of socialisation. So, t- you know, things like dancing, for example, to try and prevent falls in older people is fun. And when people turn up to do it, they start to engage with other people. So it has it has knock on benefits over and above what it's sort of designed for, which is to improve agility and and balance um so uh, what i really like about it is it becomes a sort of social approach to to a medical problem and um what we found locally is that it does tend to uh, d- does tend to be much more enjoyed by patients and therefore we have better um we have better attendance rates in uh, other rehabilitation services and why did you sort of decide on on dance as a thing as opposed to i don't know Tai Chi or martial arts or anything else that would be sort of equally physical and, and balanced base. How did you come to that decision? Um, well, that was, uh, I, I suppose it's, it's partly um, 
uh, just a personal thing. So um, I, I think most people enjoy dancing. And I also know from a personal point of view that my my mum, who's in her 80s, had become sort of static in herself. And she used to love to dance when she was younger. So I just encouraged her to do that. Um, and she really both enjoyed it and she got a bit more agility. On top of that, there is quite a lot of work now going on on, from a medical point of view, in, into this area, and there's a uh, there's a, a an evidence based uh, based program about dancing for better balance. So, uh, in, in a way, it was both because it was a bit of fun and a little bit left field, but also because there is an emerging evidence base. So I wasn't just uh, operating in a vacuum, so to speak, uh, and um, it's the sort of thing that pe- patients raise their eyebrows at. But they usually give it a go, actually, and then they start to really enjoy it. And I've had lots of fantastic feedback from these sort of schemes I've done in the past as well. Fantastic. So you decided, talking to patients and and for other reasons, to to use dance. Mm. I, I presume you're not a dance teacher as well as a GP. So how did you go about making that connection with with the, the arts world to start doing this? Well, I do. I think I think you've hit upon a crucial area there. Really, is that when you're when you are um, in the medical sort of profession as such. I, I certainly couldn't teach dance. There's no way I could do that. But uh, there are people out there. It's exactly what they do, and you have to make connections with the the community now. Because I've been doing this sort of thing for for some time, I, I, I've got a few connections, particularly with things like you know district councils and things. And you have to work with them. They often know a number of contacts. And the the, the most important thing to do if you're just trying to set something like this up is just to have a meeting with as many different areas, you know, uh, people from different areas as possible. Uh, and then almost always there's someone who says, yeah, I can lead a dance class. I've got some experience. Uh, and then someone else offers something else in into sort of mix. Uh, and so in the end, what uh, your job as a, a doctor is, is to, you know, identify patients really and get them going along. So it really it's about networking, which is a horrible word, but it's about getting to know people in your area. And most GPs, I, I find have really good sort of uh, roots in their local area. They know a lot of people. They, they've often worked uh, or, or they're the doctors of certain people. So, you know, there's lots of different ways we can uh, we can access this sort of thing. And it also makes them sort of get out of the sort of NHS bubble and start working more in the community, which has got a benefit in itself. You have a, a clinical need you're trying to fill. You found someone who would be able to sort of facilitate this this non-medical intervention um, to mm. help dance but you know to to do that you need a, a studio or a space in which you can do that that presumably that dance teacher is doing this professionally so they need to be paid yeah how do you get the sort of seed money to 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 start this before you can then maybe f- channel funds through a um you know through a personal uh, health budget or, or whatever it is how do did you actually start well, well, to start with, you can. There's a lot of um, grant giving charities around, which will, uh, for you know, for smaller amounts of money, under two or three thousand, they're they're willing to um, they're willing to support these sort of schemes. And one of the benefits to working in health is everyone, you know, there's we're in a good area because we're trying to help people get better, uh, and that's looked upon very kindly by you know charities. So, what again, I've developed some connections with. 
local um, uh, grant-giving charities, and um, I therefore make applications uh, myself, or I get my practice manager to do so, to get these things up and running. They're not actually very time-consuming, uh, initially, those things. There's things like big lottery and awards for all, and lots of different ways of getting funding. Once you've actually got it going, what I find is is a lot of these schemes are, schemes are adopted by either district council, sometimes actually the CCG themselves, if you can show um, uh, if you can show benefit from them. So it's really just that first sort of launch of it often has to be supported by a uh, char- charitable donation or sometimes. Um, uh, doctors, doctor surgeries have a sort of charitable fund uh, which patient leave, leaves legacies to. That that's an ideal sort of thing to use as well. So the first sort of session launch of it usually has a, a money. Uh, you need to find the money for that, and then after that, often you can pull money in or get uh, get other people to support it. So it get it. They, these things develop their own momentum. I find, and uh, they they take on a life of their own. Simon Ofer, GP from Gloucestershire there. Now, as these clubs or classes or groups or whatever proliferate, we want to know what's worked so that good ideas can spread. But we'll also want to know what hasn't worked so that scarce public resources aren't wasted. Now, Helen Stokes-Lampard, GP, Professor of Primary Care, former chair of the RCGP and now head of the National Academy for Social Prescribing, is on a mission to do that. She came into the studio to explain what questions the Academy is actually going to try and answer. So Helen, thank you very much for coming in. As I said, you're a a GP uh, and a professor, Mm -hmm. uh, and you're now chairing this new Academy. Mm. So you're coming very much from this practical world of doing medicine, but you're interested in social prescribing, evidently. Absolutely. And I just wondered a little bit about your progression from, you know, from being a GP to, to someone who's really interested in this this broader this but broader thing. It's been fascinating because, you know, ever since I was a medical student, the recognition that the social challenges our patients face have an impact on their health was there. I mean, I remember hearing that in medical school. I remember then when the Mott Review came out a decade ago and how powerfully that uh, articulated these things, which, you know, you kind of knew and felt, but it started giving a language mm. to this. Um, and as an aside, um, being born and brought up in South Wales and having had uh, inspiration chari- inspirational characters uh, in the whole world of health inequalities, um, obviously Julian Tudor Hart and inverse care law from 1971, you know, I was brought up in a world where those things were talked about. And so um, once I got into clinical practice as a GP, having moved across from a secondary care speciality, I was struck immediately by the incredibly powerful impact uh, of social factors on our patients' lives. And some of my clearest memories of those patients that I looked after as a GP registrar, as we called them then, um, were that the social... We were patching people up and then they'd go out and their social issues would drag them down and they'd come back to us. And so there was this this... This was a very prevalent thing, but I didn't have a narrative for it. I didn't have a language for it. And of course, as time has gone on, this description of social prescription as being something that, of course, good GPs have always done in terms of recognising the social impact on our patients' lives. The people come in with a medical problem that is caused or triggered or worsened by their social factors or indeed their mental health problems. The psychological issues are adversely impacted by social factors. And unless you address the social challenges 
all you're doing is patching up the medical and the social will keep dragging them down again. Mm. And, you know, when you think about the Marmot Report or, or some mm. of the things you're, you're talking about, there's, there's lots in there about the public health things, smoking, oh, alcohol, mm. diet, uh, the general effect of poverty and, mm. and the kind of grind of, of doing that. Um, you know, I, I think you imagine you have someone coming in with COPD or mm-hmm. having exacerbations and then all the things that you're doing aren't working, but you find out that they're living in a flat that's full of damp and, and mould and things like yeah. that. And that's the, the and they've got the, neighbours who are always arguing and their daughter's going through a divorce and actually they've been in domestic violence and they've got all these other issues. And there may be things where social prescription could help in terms of, OK, have they got the best housing that they could have and are eligible for? Do they know how to access resources? Is there anything we can help with their safety? But there's also what makes them feel good about themselves? What helps them live the best life that's realistic and accessible to them? Did they know that 100 yards from where they live, there is a brilliant community group that kind of could introduce them back to something they used to love doing 20 years ago? Mm. That gives them um, that gives them back that emotional well-being, that spiritual well-being that they might not otherwise not not of being fulfilled in their lives. They might not even recognise that that's something missing to them. So this is about helping people live the best life they can. Mm. It is not instead of medicine, it is as well as medicine. And in, in that example, you know, there, mm. there's a housing issue, which yep. is kind of local authority okay. potentially, or a landlord or, or someone. Um, there's the, the, those broader social things that you're, you're talking yep. about. There's maybe, you know, there's dietary, there's lots of other That's stuff going services, on. Yeah. So what does social prescribing actually mean in that context? Because, you know, a, a GP isn't really equipped to go and intervene and I don't know, but You're dad right. proof in someone's so, flat. So, so. so let, let's give this imaginary patient a let, let's, let's call him David, and he's walked into my consulting room with an exacerbation of his COPD again. And, you know, we'll quickly deal with the medical stuff. And I often say to juniors and trainees that the medicine is often the easiest part <laughs> of what we do as, as GPs. Yeah, um, And we may well recognise that his, you know, his... Uh, you know, emotional well-being is challenging. We may be looking at, at, you know, the borderline depression, the mild to moderate depression he has and thinking there. But once we flip into checking out the social side of it and flag these things up, you know, I've got 10 minutes or 12 minutes if I'm lucky in that consultation. I can't be his friend. I can't be his counsellor. I can't be his priest. But he's come into my consulting room with social factors impacting on his health. I've got the flag. There is an issue. And what I would have done, what I do right now, is I rack my brains quickly for what might help this person. How can I suggest things to him? But I haven't got the time to do that as well as I would like. Mm. And good GPs have found ways to make time, particularly for those really complex patients where we see all these layers of challenge. Um, and, you know, given them a longer appointment or spent time and just run late, at the, you know, which is stressful for the doctor, stressful for the other people waiting uh, and the receptionist outside. But it's the right thing for that individual. If we think in social prescribing paradigm, and bear in mind, social prescribing isn't one intervention, it is a system, it's a different way of thinking, then we say, do you know what, I've got somebody who could spend a bit of time with you. And the social prescriber, or the NHS England term at the moment is link worker, do you know, I don't mind what we call them, but somebody who will sit down and spend time to understand you, what you need and what you want, and what's reasonable to link you up with. Um, can be hugely valuable and that takes 
significant time. We know that in successful programmes, over a period of time, a good link worker may spend four or five hours on average with a patient, getting them to the right place and the best place they can be. So this isn't a tick box exercise. This isn't signposting. This is so much more to truly understand and help. And there's no GP that's got the time to do that. And Mm. it wouldn't be the right use of their expertise and their resource either. But they're often somebody who flags these issues up. But I need to be clear, it's not just about GPs. I mean, I am a GP, that's the experience I have. But, you know, occupational therapists recognise this loud and clear, I've been talking about this, you know, for decades. District nurses, health visitors, particularly the, the closer you are to people in their community, the more obviously you see these things. But, you know, there are so many colleagues in secondary and tertiary care who, as soon as you use the phrase and describe what you're talking about, they recognise it and they see how the patient, you know, the orthopaedic challenges that come through the door. And sometimes with the right uh, set of factors to improve somebody's life, the hip replacement might never need it to have been done if we got on top of that person's well-being and their activity levels and their obesity by helping them feel valued and better as an individual. There's a big, big virtuous circle here. Mm. I don't want to overplay it. I certainly don't want to make people think this is some kind of nirvana. I'm such a realist. I'm pragmatic. And in my surgery tomorrow, the nitty gritty of life as a GP will be right there. But every so often a patient will come through the door and I just know I can't give them as much as I'd really like to. And I know that with that extra bit of help and time and support, they could be so much better. And they may even come back to see me less frequently. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot to unpack, unpack in there. So um, let's start at the beginning of that. You said that, uh, uh, you know, th- this isn't for GPs to do. And it's interesting that when you were at the uh, RCGP, yeah. you did ask GPs about what you thought um, they thought social prescribing might do to their workload. And yes. a lot thought that 59%, I think it was, thought that um, it might reduce things. But... Um, a chunk of them thought as well that, that they were worried about keeping on, on top of everything. Yeah. Um, so you, you say that there are these these link workers, these people who will, will help GPs kind of be the bridge between the GP and, and maybe those those services that are available. Now, there are going to be, what, a thousand link workers in England? So in England, so NHS England have committed to um, offering a thousand link workers within the first year. So that's up to next, up to April 2020. So in the coming months, there'll be up to a thousand. Um, and they've committed in the subsequent few years to building that number to an extra, to four and a half thousand. Um, I understand those are on target and people are taking up the opportunity. These are 100% funded. They're additional. I feel like they're a free resource to GPs, but, but GPs and their teams do have to set up the referral system locally as to what's right for them. So in my own practice, we've just set this up. It's about five clicks to make a referral to our link worker because we were really keen and my colleagues were very keen that what we didn't want was something that added to our workload. But as soon as you say, actually, this person can spend time with those complex patients, suddenly you can see GPs light up and think, actually, this could be really helpful. And I, I guess there is something, if you've not seen it in action, you don't feel it, it's really easy to be dragged out and misunderstood because there is such negativity out there generally. It's easy to think this is something being foist upon you trust me i'd take my hand off anybody offering to give me free help with my most complex patients um but so so we've got to get past that natural cynicism in doctors we've got to get past the pragmatic stuff about okay somebody's got to interview someone somebody's got to appoint them and if you're not quite sure what it is it's quite hard to know what you should be taking on 
and then there's the making it as simple as you can to refer in so you know i would strongly advocate the very simple referral pathways internally to access your link worker you know the barest of details auto-populated forms um, and let the link worker reach out to the person and if they engage great they, they take it on whether or not this feedback to the gp at some point i it, to be decided locally what's important is this not this must not be a top down you must do this must be a, a hey there's an offer here if you wanted to take it mm-hmm. and if pra- what in my experience so far practices that have taken it up are so enthusiastic and are converted to the concept because you can shape it to what you need locally so in many areas local government are doing some really amazing social prescription stuff and again just to be clear people may not use the term social prescription this is a system for helping people to drawing people out to be the best they can be Uh, other areas there'll be really strong voluntary sector other areas some communities have got fantastic uh, religious leadership doing this kind of thing you know total multi-faith approach but that's where it's come from and you've got other areas where you've got whole communities that have come together to make a big difference. So we know sort of Frome in Somerset is, is regarded as one of the, the flagship initiatives where a whole town is doing this, a whole town is committed to working together. Mm-hmm. It did start with a GP and a GP surgery, but it's not led by a GP. Um, and, and now they've got some, like 1,400 people in the town are signed up and had a bit of training to just start the connection process and the referral process. Mm. So that's, that's great. I mean, I think people heard that there's going to be a thousand uh, link workers and they're thinking well, that's one for every what, seven <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, those people are going to be overwhelmed so, so at least yeah. there is a, a, a growing number of them but as you say they're going to be very localised because the the services that are available in the local area whether it is you know a council one or a, a third sector or, yeah. or whatever it is will be massively varied so when you know, a GP is referring to a link worker to then refer potentially on to, to another service. How do we know what kind of thing actually works and, and what is good? So what's because, the evidence? Yeah, essentially. I mean, we <laughs> are the BMJ. We, we care about evidence. Now, I was having a look around about this, and, and there mm. was a systematic review published a couple of years mm. ago looking at this, and they were saying there isn't actually a great deal of evidence. I think they found 15 kind of high-quality studies from... Um, from different kinds of, of, of interventions that are available. Um, and that's across the, the whole country. Yeah. So that, that, okay. that seems like there's a sort of lack of really firm So I, I, I've been asked to chair this brand new body, the National Academy for Social Prescribing. So, and one of the key aims of that academy is to draw together the evidence presented in an accessible way and also to commission and seek out evidence where the gaps are and you know I come from an evidence background I was brought up in the EBM movement I'm a professor in general practice and I have a PhD which was epidemiology based so I kind of get the um, the gold standard RCT paradigm but I also know that social prescription does not fit into a clear we're not going to do an RCT of social prescribing because for a start it's far too complex it's a system it's a multi-step system there are many bits within it that have great evidence we've got fabulous evidence about you know nobody would deny the value and the role of increasing exercise for for almost every uh, type of citizen nobody is going to deny the benefit of eating you know a balanced diet on you know there, there are there are so many things that, there are so many knowns that there are out there um there's fabulous emerging evidence about people who have a diagnosis of dementia and singing therapy or music and these kind of things you, you know 
I'm sorry, you're not going to get an RCT of social prescription that ends up because the pathways are so complex and they're individualised. So we need to rethink the evidence, the, the paradigm, the research paradigm and the evidence paradigm. And there are some there's some great academic departments thinking about this in the wider sense. I mean, this is translational uh, at the extreme end. This isn't translational medicine. This is translational social care, mm. just to be clear. This is in addition to medicine, not instead of. So and there are some people um, who cannot see beyond the EBM paradigm, and that's OK. But please don't try saying that their way is the only way of getting evidence. I mean, I think you'll find most social scientists would be profoundly offended if you start critiquing their world through that lens. However, I am a doctor, I'm a frontline clinician, and I do need to be evidence-based in what I do. So I need, there is a balance to be struck. There are some big gaps in what we can find with the evidence, and so we need to be calling for academic partners. We need to be you know, speaking to NIHR and the CMO and having constructive conversations about how can we commission research, because hmm. we do not want to cause harm. That is absolutely vital. But actually suggesting to somebody that they have a conversation with somebody whose sole purpose is to help make their life a bit better it's quite hard to see how much harm is going to come from that. Mm. We can examine it, we can dissect bits of it, but let's be realistic. Mm. And this has been funded from kind of personal budget kind of stuff. So people will want to know where the money is, is best spent. And, you know, obviously in the NHS we have NICE who does that for a clinical one. So is there any, going to be an attempt to do any sort of cost effectiveness kind of so thing? we or? need to be clear about the money. So what the National Academy is doing, the National Academy is having um, a lump sum from the Department of Health and Social Care to pump primate and get it going. But we'll be seeking external funding and we, one of the pillars of what we need to do is get the money together so we can help funding for the voluntary sector. So again, I don't want to think of this as an NHS intervention. Social prescribing is not an NHS funded intervention, very clearly. There are occasions where people may choose to use their own personal health budget to access things via social prescription, but it's not an NHS-funded initiative. I want to be clear about that. Um, and I think if people have got that message, then it's really important that we bust that myth. In fact, Mythbusters is one of the things we're going to be putting on our um, Academy website. So just be a few things. Let's be quite clear. Some odd things we see on social media. Kind of, where on earth did that come from? However... Um, so there's the funding, you know, the voluntary sector are actually a little bit wary. Oh my gosh, are they going to suddenly get flooded? But we also know there are amazing, hugely underutilised resources out there in the voluntary sector in the community. There's a huge appetite out there in um, a lot of the, the sport and activity sector really want to tap into this. They get, they want citizen engagement and we can help with that. And so this concept of connecting people is a part of what we, the umbrella term social prescribing will do. I'm very struck by the importance of organisations like Citizens Advice and, and many of the third sector, the health charities, and the amazing work they do that people don't even know about and don't access. So we've got very patchy coverage at the moment. So a really important part of what comes next is how to map what's out there and then help fill the gaps in. Mm. When we're thinking about maybe creating some of this evidence base, it seems like the outcome measures that you might have, you know, traditionally in an RCT or a cohort study or, or anything, yeah. they're not just they're just not going to be able to capture that sense of community or I don't know, agency or whatever it is. Well being, well being empowerment. Yeah. Really you know, hard. St lack of loneliness, whatever yeah. it is. 
so there are so there are some objective things that you can measure. You can measure social contact, and we know social isolation is is quantitative and measurable. Actually, I'm much more interested in loneliness and the subjective feelings that people have. And you know, by definition, if it's subjective and how you feel, it's going to take a much more qualitative assessment of that. And in a sense, we've got a research language for, that we can use there. Um, but actually, in terms of somebody feeling better about themselves, I mean, yeah, okay, you can. Have, there are patient-reported outcomes, and there is an emerging um, research narrative. I guess we can use there. Um, but you know, de- death and hard outcomes of that nature and blood pressure are actually not going to fit in this kind of model at all because this is a complex, fuzzy system, and. I guess this is a good challenge to the research community about what are reasonable outcomes. And it's because there are so many factors, it's very hard to measure them, as I say, in the traditional paradigm in a pure sense. Which then makes any sort of cost-effectiveness even harder to measure on top. You need them for cost-effectiveness. You need to be incredibly narrow, incredibly specific and incredibly focused, which is almost the antithesis of what we're talking about. (laughs) So, and I think this is why I'm throwing this challenge out and I'm, being quite bold in what I say, you know, our, our traditional research paradigms do not work for complex systems that are in, that this is beyond translational research because this is not medicine. This is beyond medicine. This is supplementary to medicine. And, you know, you could look at how governments measure, you know, sort of satisfaction and well-being of populations. There are population surveys and things that you can do. But again, you know, the peer academics would, would, would be very sniffy about the quality of that so we need to think differently. Mm-hmm. And it just makes me think Scotland, some Scandinavian countries, New Zealand, there's a whole movement now to, to measure economic output that's not just money, it's, it's other things. And yeah, it's well-being, sort of, happiness, satisfaction, mm-hmm. joy. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the sort of the loneliness is and um, what makes people feel good and what makes people feel bad. And, you know, we know that if you are subjectively lonely, then you're, mortal- you know, you, you die sooner. You, you, you absolutely clear-cut um, associations there. But you can be lonely in a crowded room. You can have a thousand Facebook friends and be lonely. And so there's something about quality of interactions as well. And I think when it comes to social prescription, there's something about the quality of the social prescription. And... Um, as opposed to the quantity of what we're providing for people, there'll be some who'll be wanting to do so many hours, hours of it and do so many hours per patient. Compute to a good outcome? No, it's the quality. So how you measure a high quality interaction, I think, is uh, a really interesting and another conversation, another podcast. <laughs> I think so. We'll have to leave it for that. So if we think about this as well, I, I mean, I know you want to get away from the medical paradigm, but I think it's maybe useful in terms of thinking about levels of, of service. So yeah. there are maybe the things that, have, that an individual clinician and patient would do or prescribe, and I can mm. see how that works in that social mm. prescribing. But then on top of that, there's a layer of public health and things that are really yeah. useful. Oh, there. gosh, yeah. Uh, is there going to be a that level of thinking about sort of social prescription kind of yeah. thing. So, so there's, okay, so there's, it's absolutely vital that social prescription is something that that works in um, harmony with what's going on in the public health space, that's going on in local government space, that's what's going on in um, social care. You know, so I had a challenge from a social worker the other day that, the, well, well, aren't these social prescribers trying to take over my job? Good heavens, no. Most social workers are dealing with the really complex, mucky end of the difficult stuff in people's lives. And 
it's not we're not for a second suggesting that we take that but there is a gap here there is a gap between what many of these services and can provide and what's available at the moment um, and in the same way you know a gp who makes a lot of time for a patient can go and do this stuff but are they right to do it you know i do use the phrase that i can't be my patient's friend i can't be their daughter i can't be their counselor um, but they may need all those things somehow um, because then again that's all going into the social part of it um, so yes, alliances or partnerships with other organisations like um, Public Health England is an obvious one. I've mentioned local government. I also think, as I said, the third sector. Um, we've got amazing organisations like National Voices that speak for patient groups. You know, huge amount important that we have dialogue there. And there are loads of people out there already doing social prescription that are forming fascinating, powerful, important groups already. There are people developing training programmes. This... This academy, the concept of it, is meant to be overarching to try and bring these things together. So, kind of, let's have a conversation. Let's let's talk about it so everyone's clear what it is. Let's get some definitions. Let's get the evidence base as best we can. But let's be quite clear about what's an appropriate evidence paradigm and what's not. And let's bust a few myths along the way. And then there's the funding piece. There's the you know I I see some amazing initiatives that are what I call ultra local, where a few hundred pounds can make all the difference because all they need is to rent a community hall uh, for two days or two mornings a week to, to run something special um, or an allotment type programme. You can't dictate that nationally, but it may be what we need is to have a very accessible, like touch way of people accessing funds for those things. Um, of course, once you come to national programmes, the big national charities, what we need to do is create partnerships. I'm always struck by the big medical charities do phenomenal work but my challenge to some of them has been that if only they work together more they could be significantly more impactful on people's lives and the Richmond group have taken that on board and are doing really great things in collaboration together mm. sorry I've gone off on a tangent <laughs> I do that no, that's all right. I've just, it's just got me thinking because um, uh, you know you, you're talking about creating essentially this whole other world mm-hmm. Um, this whole network, this ecosystem that's kind of a running movement. a movement, running alongside the EBM movement. You're yeah. trying to do different things. Um, and I was just thinking, within the EBM world, there there is now quite a clear way in which things can happen. So if you've got a new drug, it goes through regulation and then that gets handed off to, you know, approved or not, and then NICE will have a look at it, cost-effectiveness, and then local, mm. you know, CCGs or whatever can decide how to, to implement that mm. and things. So there's a really clear sort of pathway through that and the interconnectedness of that works. Yeah. But it seems like we're not there yet on that social prescribing we're, side. So we're a like, long way from there, yeah. Like we've got to be realistic and pragmatic about this, absolutely. And in fairness, you did ask me earlier about the um, cost-effectiveness analysis and, and health economics. Um I think in time it would be great to aspire to do that because I think for some of the interventions, I think you're going to have to break the chunks down much smaller into bite-sized to be, quite frankly, things that are going to fit the health economic modelling approach to things. And, you know, the questions may be, um, does participation in a programme or in a system lead to, you know, reduced use of particular services or whatever? But I think... You know, we know full well that to get the really big stuff, which is about quality of life, patient reported health outcomes, a more modern way of measuring what matters to people, um, doesn't necessarily fit with the research paradigms that we're used to using. And I think some people are quite uncomfortable about that. I'm much more, do you know what? I want to learn. Let's find ways of doing this. Come on. My amazing academic colleagues tell me, how can we measure this best? What does good look like? 
and let's not tie ourselves down to one fixed model because it is quite a complex space. It's much more complex. You know, taking a drug through from the bench to the bedside, you can see a linear route. Of course, there'll be twists and turns along the way, but the, there is a direction of travel. Whereas with social prescription, there will be many loops uh, and spirals. And I think uh, you need to think very three, or should I say four dimensionally, <laughs> as opposed to two dimensionally. Yeah. Um, so we've gone really high level then. I just want to bring it right back yeah. down to back that. Back to David that, and yeah. his COPD. <laughs> yeah, or I was thinking, someone, you know, if there's... If you're a GP listening to this and you've got a patient who you think at the moment, uh, you know, it's uh, really useful, I want to join you to a link where I go. Or maybe you've got a patient who you know is really interested in gardening and you think, you know what would really help you is joining a gardening group or something. How do you, you know, if you're doing this in your practice, how do you sort of practically have that conversation with them and then then hand them over to, to the system? So, I mean, there's so many variables, aren't there? But, you know, so first of all, what have you got locally? So you've got to know what you've got and everyone is going to be at a different place. So, you know, I've... So, so 10 years ago as a GP, I had a notice board full of leaflets. And then when CQC came along, they, my, my colleagues made me take my, my leaflets down because they were a dust trap. So I now have a notebook and a digital notebook of, of references and resources. And so that's me as an individual trying to help. But actually, once, but if I know that I've got a link worker at my disposal, I make a referral there. If I know that there's a great uh, local council service, I kind of can connect there. So it does. It's the first thing you've got to know what's out there, and whether that's your knowledge of individual services or better, a knowledge of how to access somebody who can spend time doing this well with your patients. Um, and it, you know, a, a great exercise is to if you really don't know, you haven't got a clue. Um, does your practice can your practice free up a couple of hours of an interested receptionist's time to find out they are often incredibly embedded in the community they're frontline seeing their patients and patients talk to receptionists you know all the old myths about receptionists as dragons you know they, they do a hugely difficult job try sitting on the front desk at a gp surgery for half an hour anonymously and watch what they deal with but they are often very good at this and they may know where to pick up the phone and where to start. So if you feel at sea, ask one of your uh, trusted receptionists for some inspiration. A couple of phone calls, a couple of emails may well be all it's need to find out what's available locally. Just asking your local council, you might be amazed at what's on your doorstep. Um, and sometimes, I, I certainly know myself, there are times when I've discovered a service locally and I felt a bit silly. I've been a GP in this area for donkey's years and I didn't know that existed. And sometimes it's because I've gone looking for something with a patient in mind. Or I've had a patient in mind and suddenly a, a post that's been up in the surgery suddenly shouted to me in a way it had never done before. Um so it does so so you need to know what's out there you need to know how to access it and you need to have a go at referring to it Mm. and once people have had experience of using something patients will frequently feed back and suddenly then you're building your own okay it's your n of one to start with but then you build it having a you know practice conversations you know you protected learning sessions in practices have we talked at this stuff what are individual experiences you may be amazed what your colleagues have already gone through done or found out and if there have been bad experiences, it's vital to talk about those and learn from those too. What doesn't work? Mm. I think because people have un- uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about what social prescription is. Um, there have been areas where people have referred to what they thought was social prescription, but it's actually just kind of a, a care. It could be a care navigation system, which is great, but that is very specific about helping you navigate your care. It is not social prescription. Um, a link worker. 
I think the problem with the term link worker, it implies that all they do is link, um, as opposed to spending time and getting under the skin of a person, not literally, clearly, um, but <laughs> understanding what motivates people uh, and what they truly need. Mm. I'm going off on a tangent again, aren't no, I? No, no. <laughs> I was just thinking it's... Um I mean, you're kind of describing maybe you will end up in the future with maybe someone in your practice who's a GP with a special interest in social prescribing and could be... You, you may do, uh, but I, I think that what we'll find is that these amazing people who will surround us in our practice and work alongside us will probably do it every bit as well, if not better than we did, and they didn't need to spend all that time in medical school. So I, I, one of my phrases that's been quoted back to me a few times I say you know social prescribing is what good GPs have always done it's also what great hairdressers bartenders and priests have always done too it's that recognition that people who spend time with people understand that social is very important for health and well-being and um, I really don't want it to be a thing that only GPs feel ownership of so that's a run-through of social prescribing. We also have a podcast with a GP and one of the link workers we've talked about. They discuss there how a link worker can actually use their time with a patient to get to the bottom of what kind of social prescriptions could actually help. Now that's it for this episode of the podcast, but we'll be back soon with more well-being, but this time of doctors. Michael West is a professor of organisational psychology and has undertaken a report on well-being in the NHS for the General Medical Council. He joins Abby Rimmer to talk through what his findings were and how the NHS compares to other industries and institutions. He also talks about why he thinks that the current way in which staff are managed is totally wrong for the kind of work that they do. That will be available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. So subscribe so you don't miss out on that. Until next time, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.